This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Alain Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. This is MyHeart.net, and uh, today we're going to talk about familial hypercholesterolemia, or FH, and it's particularly going to be interesting for the younger patient population. Uh, with us today, we have uh, Dr. Pradeep Natarajan, who's Director of the Preventive Cardiology at the Mass General Hospital. He also has an endowed chair, the Fireman Endowed Chair in the Vascular Medicine at the Mass General. He's also Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. So Pradeep, thank you very much for taking the time and being here for us. Yeah, my pleasure. Honored to be with you um, and looking forward to discussing. Thank you so much. You know, Pradeep, it seems like when we're young, uh, we're invincible. I mean, and particularly if we talk about cardiovascular disease, that's mostly for people that are just kind of uh, the older patient population. Uh, despite that, and all the advance that we've had in preventive medicine, uh, we're seeing just an increased incidence of myocardial infarction in the young. Uh, you know, particularly in the last 20 years, we've seen a double, actually, of, of premature myocardial infarction. And I think this studies have shown a link between familial hypercholesterolemia, or FH, and this increasing problem of heart attack in the young. And I should know a thing or two about that, because I'm French-Canadian. I come from Quebec, you know, and we have a lot of FH or, um, you know, familial hypercholesterolemia and premature coronary disease. So tell us a little bit, what is FH and uh, what does it mean for the patient? Yeah, so um, FH or familial hypercholesterolemia is a condition that um, the scientific and clinical community have known about um, for, you know, better part of the 20th century, obviously going into the 21st century. It's a condition that is characterized by severely elevated blood cholesterol, primarily LDL cholesterol, that's the bad cholesterol. And uh, the important clinical um, uh, consequence is premature heart disease, namely premature myocardial infarction or heart attack. Now the uh, molecular hallmark is typically a, a mutation that occurs in the LDL receptor. The LDL receptor sits on the surface of liver cells is involved in clearing the LDL particles. And so if the, the receptor is not working, LDL particles stay in circulation. And also the liver thinks that there isn't much cholesterol or much LDL because the receptor is not working. And so the liver starts going on overdrive and starts producing more cholesterol. So you get in this vicious cycle of very high cholesterol. And the, you know, as I said, the major consequence is cardiovascular disease, but for many and, you know, really all patients, we can often um, find this by measuring blood lipids. And a major reason why current guidelines recommend screening for lipids for people starting in their 20s is really to identify familial hypercholesterolemia. So as a clinician, I mean, I, I know we, we tend to underdiagnose because I think we don't know enough about it and we miss it. What is the best way to make a diagnosis of familial hypercholesterolemia and, and whether we're, we're dealing with one gene or two alleles, you know, that are missing? I guess for us, the adult, we're going to see mostly hetero, um, heterozygous uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, won't we? 
Yeah, Alan, rec recognition is is the major issue. Um, you know, when we think about cholesterol and heart disease, as you said earlier on um, in this recording, that um, those things happen often later in life, even if they're happening prematurely, people are not thinking about that in their 20s. They're not usually thinking about their heart health. But the science has become increasingly clear that what you do early in life and what your risk factors are early in life matter a lot. And so, you know, people feel alive and well and invincible, including into their 20s and even up until middle age because they've been feeling fine. But plaque buildup starts early, risk accumulates, and making these interventions earlier in life is key. And where there is the clearest opportunity is in the context of FH, because we have decades of research, you know, almost a century of research that has strongly linked circulating cholesterol with cardiovascular disease. And the longer it's elevated, the more it magnifies your future risk for heart disease. And so earlier identification and earlier intervention is critical. And that really just starts with uh, lipids. So the underdiagnosis is often people are just not getting their lipids checked. They're just waiting much longer. And that could be for a wide variety of reasons why that might happen. And then if it happens to be checked and if it's abnormal or very high, because people are feeling fine, either they're not as inclined to take a, a medicine, a preventive medicine is often a lifelong medicine. And so reconciling those can be really challenging, even though the, um, the science is clear. Now for diagnosis, there's some controversies in diagnosis, meaning um, individuals with FH will have you know, very high cholesterol, but lots of people with very high cholesterol, that's an LDL cholesterol greater than 190, that's traditionally thought of as severe hypercholesterolemia, turns out actually most of those individuals don't have FH mutations. They likely have other genetic contributors that are you know, less well-defined. We've been working on characterizing what those features are, um, but it's probably a mix of genetics and lifestyle for a bulk of individuals, a fraction of that related to familial hypercholesterolemia. So one, everybody who has severely elevated cholesterol, you know, we should work on lowering their cholesterol. That could be by means of medicines as well as lifestyle modification. Now, individuals who have FH, there is further risk beyond that measured LDL cholesterol, likely because they have been living with very high cholesterol for a long period of time where the environment and the lifestyle factors, you know, may not be explaining that distribution difference as much. And so recognizing that it's FH, we should be, you know, even more strong about introducing these interventions, particularly with meds, because lifestyle is often insufficient, but does complement the strategies. And we are, we do recommend being more aggressive in those patients. So one, ensuring that we get fasting lipids is critical. And for individuals that we suspect FH, current consensus panels do suggest performing genetic testing to see if we should be particularly aggressive in those patients. Well, let's talk about treatment a little bit. You know, when I was growing up, I had a great friend of mine that he had FH and he was taking this cholesterol and a very smart guy he ended up being going into actuary school. Um, but I, I know the treatment has evolved a lot in the last 50 years, and uh, nobody gives cholesterol anymore. We have so many good treatments. Tell us about what's available now. Yeah, for, first line is statins now. It's been that, you know, since the 1980s, 1990s, now obviously in widespread clinical practice. 
um, lots of comfort with that medicine, including with long-term follow-up. And this is really important for especially younger patients who may be placed on this medicine or we're recommending who are concerned about what the long-term implications are because these are often lifelong preventive medicines or cholesterol lowering will be lifelong. And we have lots of great long-term data in statins and they're all they're all very safe medicines. You know, the main thing that people read about are muscle complaints. Um, it turns out that that is is little is a little tricky to analyze because as people get older, more of them get placed on statins, and muscle complaints are pretty common when you're older. So there is an overlap. Actually, if you look at blinded randomized controlled trial when people don't know if they're on a statin or a placebo, the rates are almost identical between the two. But you know, there is a subgroup of individuals where it's you know it's reasonably reliable. They've actually done some pretty nifty trials on statins now for those patients where they blindly take one, blindly as in just randomly go back between a statin and placebo. Actually, most of those individuals don't have a clear correlation of their symptoms between statin and placebo, suggesting it's probably an even smaller subgroup where it's bona fide. So anyway, very safe medicine, excellent long-term side effect profile. And now there have been other medicines, you know, um, there's a medicine called ezetimibe, goes by um, the trade name Zedia, but has been you know, generic for a long time. It's a non-statin medicine. It um, so statins inhibit this enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase. That is the enzyme that's on overdrive, overproducing cholesterol in the liver. So it works very well in FH patients. Um, Ezetimibe inhibits NPC1L1. That's an intestinal transporter of cholesterol. Cholestyramine, as you mentioned, is not frequently used. It is used um, it, it can also um, inhibit dietary absorption of cholesterol. It's largely binding up the cholesterol in the gut. That does lead to a lot of GI intolerances. So it is generally not a first or second line medicine, but it can be used uh, potentially. However, there are now many, many more medicines that one would not have to use. That class of medicine is very uncommonly used. Another class of medicine that has been available now for almost 10 years, about eight years now, is a class of medicine called PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies or PCSK9 inhibitors. PCSK9 is involved in the regulation of the LDL receptor. And if you inhibit it, it leads to more LDL receptors, better clearance of LDL cholesterol. And those are very effective at lowering LDL. They are injectable medicines that you take about every two weeks and you inject yourself under the skin. It's almost... And you know these are pre-filled syringes, um, so pretty well tolerated. Excellent at lowering cholesterol if needed on top of those additional medicines. There's yet another approved medicine called bempedoic acid um, or nexlatol. It inhibits an enzyme called ACLY, which is also involved in the cholesterol synthesis pathway. And it's a pill. Um, and that also lowers cholesterol pretty similar to azetamide. And lastly, there is another um, mechanism for lower uh, for inhibiting PCSK9. It's uh, a PCSK9 siRNA um, that is administered about every six months, and it gives much more durable lowering for PCSK9. Relatively new, but now available. Um, also, another medicine in the armament. And so now, with all of these different options, we can typically find the right. Um, set of medicines for the right patient to ultimately get their cholesterol at goal. 
I know there's still a lot of studies going with the, the, the small molecule, you know, in glycerin for um, patients with the familial hypercholesterolemia. There are some novel uh, targets that, you know, um, pharmaceuticals are developing, particularly this, um, I didn't know much about the angiopoietin like three protein. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, angiptl 3 is another um, is another molecule that's involved in the regulation of ApoB containing lipoproteins. ApoB is uh, the key protein that is a hallmark of all atherogenic lipoproteins. AngiPTL3 is kind of involved in the regulation of both triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, LDLs, um, and to some degree HDL, just given those relationships. And it's been observed that individuals who are naturally deficient in AngiPTL3, largely because of mutations, they have lower LDL, lower triglycerides, and also lower HDL. And the data seems to suggest that they may also have a lower risk for heart disease, which would make sense if they have at minimum lower cholesterol. There have been medicines um, that are ongoing in development to inhibit AngiPTL3, one that is available in clinical practice. Um, that medicine is called Evanacumab, and it's an infusion that you get. It's only FDA approved right now for homozygous FH, so very rare, um, and it's very good at lowering LDL cholesterol. That being said, there are other companies that are, have been developing medicines to inhibit ANGPTL3. It's it's attractive because it's you know a different target, um, and it may be particularly attractive in FH patients because, as I said, PCSK9 is involved in the regulation of LDL um, receptor, and if you're and as I, if you inhibit it, you get more LDL receptors. Now, if your LDL receptors are dysfunctional, that may not be the best strategy for FH patients. Turns out, particularly in uh, you know in heterozygous FH, that means half of the LDL receptors would be dysfunctional. So inhibiting PCSK9 still actually works pretty well. However, in homozygous FH, particularly those who have true null mutations in LDL receptor, having more LDL receptor doesn't really help. And so inhibiting an, a, a different target like ANGPTL3 will work pretty well. Um, so anyway, companies are also investigating whether there is a role outside of just homozygous FH, which is the only one where it's currently available today. Very interesting. If we, if we look into the future, you know, and, and as you mentioned, you know, some people are born with a certain genetic variance and the loss of function, for example, of PCSK9 or angiopoietin. Would it be possible that one day you come for a you know, once in a lifetime infusion and just kind of correct the misspelling in your gene and do a little gene editing and actually correct what's wrong and maybe prevent heart disease and, and have a lifelong, you know, kind of a, a low level and low exposure to LDL and, and uh, decrease the problem with heart disease. Yeah, so now, now is, you know, over the last decade, two decades, we've had lots of advances in understanding what the consequences are of naturally occurring genetic variation. And now in this last decade and onward, there has been a lot of excitement in genomic-based technologies to potentially rectify some of those risks, um, whether individuals have risk alleles or not. Now, this is largely in the form of gene editing. And gene editing kind of comes in two flavors, whether it's in the germline or it's in the somatic tissues. And the germline meaning um, gene edits that would get passed on, would be you know permanent in the individual and then get passed on. 
that is less commonly done today, and that may take a while, if ever, um, we get to that point. So most of the drug development has been somatic gene editing. So edits that would be permanent and fixed in that individual, yet not passed down from generation to generation. And that comes in two flavors, whether that's happening in the body or if the gene editing is happening outside of the body. They're pretty mature drug development programs for hemoglobinopathies for gene editing um, to, to um, at least address some of the targets that are important in regulating hemoglobin. That, that Those are done outside of the body, and then bone marrow is transplanted back in. It's um, For a newer technology, there's some advantages because the gene editing machinery never enters the body, but some disadvantages because, one, at least for those, one would have to undergo bone marrow transplant. Now, what is being um, investigated for cardiovascular diseases, including for these cholesterol targets, is in vivo somatic gene editing. And uh, drug delivery to the liver is already pretty mature. And so now it's uh, delivery of machinery of gene editing to the liver. Um, and um, one can introduce a mutation that occurs in any of these genes to lead to lower gene expression. And it doesn't need to occur all, all throughout the body. Most of these um, uh, genes that are involved in lipids are liver-expressed genes. And uh, for, for some of these drug targets, the, you know, the data suggests that that could be um, safe because there are individuals who live without any PCSK9 in their body because they have loss of function mutations and no PCSK9 expressed in any tissue. And they all live to adulthood and they have lower risk for heart disease. That's a major reason why it's a you know, attractive drug target. And so for that reason, also attractive from, from a gene editing perspective, same for ANGPTL3. So colleagues are um, are working on this, and it's you know fairly early in non-human primates. It looks pretty promising as far as um, its efficacy in lowering cholesterol, and it's you know exciting because for people um, you know like many individuals, especially when they're younger and at risk, including for FH, people don't want to take medicines, and this may be a way to not take medicines where you have one cure for the most important risk factor for that person, which may be severe hypercholesterolemia, and then they live the rest of their lives. Now, you also brought up the possibility of now, for this specific defect, changing that defect. That is yet another flavor, because what I was saying before, th this gene editing is basically a new way to, to drug a drug target. Now, less so in the cholesterol space and FH space, but some, you know, has been described for um, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and really applied in like mouse models, showing examples of if there is a mutation and then changing that mutation. And you would have to do that very early in life, like in development really to show a benefit. Um, so lots of inherent risks. There has been demonstration of feasibility. And, you know, maybe at some point we will get there, maybe in our lifetimes. I don't know. Lots of lots of ethical considerations, lots of safety considerations. Um, so it certainly is an exciting time. And really, cholesterol FH have been on the forefront of this. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I think the future is bright uh, for, for these patients. It's improved so much you know, in the last several years. So I, I want to thank you very much, uh, Pradeep. Pradeep Natarajan, 
who's um, Director of Preventive Cardiology at Mass General um, at Harvard. Thank you for what you're doing. World expert on the FA. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Really a pleasure. Take Thank care. Thank you, Pradeep. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.